Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Nuhuko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the UN Security Council members to visit Burundi and report reveals shocking levels of violence in Iraq. In economics, World Economic Forum gets underway in Davos and in sports news, concerns over the deal between the Asian Football Confederation and CAF. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta says the country's troops will remain in Somalia even after last week's militant attacks in which a number of Kenyan soldiers were killed. Kenya has yet to give casualty figures for its troops, but Al-Shabaab militant group has given a figure of 100. Kenyatta says the attacks have strengthened the East African nation to fight and defeat Al-Shabaab. Our soldiers did not die in vain. We have over the years relieved millions of citizens of the Federal Republic of Somalia from the pitless oppression of terror. Our efforts, together with those of other Amisom peacekeepers who have also lost their lives, have enabled normal government operations to return in Somalia. We have all together contributed vitally to global peace and security. United Nations Deputy Secretary General Jan Alisson has warned that if the crisis in Burundi takes on ethnic dimensions, it will be much harder to control. This days before the UN Security Council visits the country. Council members begin their second visit to the country on Thursday. We see... uh very worrying signs on the ground and uh, also um, a certain nervousness in Rwanda that uh, also is of concern. What must not happen in Burundi is that this conflict moves from a political phase to an ethnic phase. Uh, When you take that step then uh, we always pay a price because then there's a new element entering the conflict which will be much more harder to control. 
Attacks by Boko Haram militants in the Defar region of southeast Niger have driven an estimated 100,000 people from their homes in recent weeks. The UN Refugee Agency and its partners say they are struggling to assist them. The displaced include local villages and people who have been uprooted several times, as well as Nigerian refugees. A 1.3 billion U.S. dollar appeal has been launched to support more than 5 million people in need in South Sudan. Conflict in the world's youngest nation has forced more than 2.3 million people to flee their homes. Nearly 4 million people have problems accessing food and more than half a million children under the age of 5 are acutely malnourished. UN Humanitarian Coordinator in South Sudan, Eugene Uusu, has urged countries to support the appeal. And finally, France has been urged to protect the right to fundamental freedoms as it works to counter terrorism. The appeal comes from five UN human rights experts who have shared their concerns with the French government. They say the current state of emergency there and laws related to the surveillance of electronic communications are imposing excessive and disproportionate restrictions on the right to privacy and other freedoms. French President François Hollande declared a state of emergency after 130 people were killed in terrorist attacks in the capital Paris in November last year. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Town. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. Days before a Security Council visit to Burundi, the UN's Deputy Secretary General has warned that if the crisis there takes on ethnic dimensions, it will be much harder to control. Council members begin their second visit to the country in less than a year on Thursday, where they are expected to push the government and opposition back towards a political dialogue that has failed to take root despite regional mediation efforts. Show and Bryce Peace reports. UN officials say the council visit offers Burundi a window of opportunity, threatened by a low-level conflict that could erupt into a full-scale civil war. Jan Eliasson speaking here after briefing the Security Council during a debate on the protection of civilians. We see uh, very worrying signs on the ground and uh, also um, a certain nervousness in Rwanda that uh, also is of concern. What must not happen in Burundi is that this conflict moves from a political phase to an ethnic phase. Uh, When you take that step, then uh, we always pay a price because then there's a new element entering the conflict which will be much more harder to control. 
What is clear from officials here is that there is a growing call, both internationally and regionally, for an impartially led mediation effort that produces results. Under the mediation of Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni, parties have failed to engage in any substantive talks, with no clear timelines, no agenda, or any agreement on who should be party to the negotiations. I very much look forward to the uh, results of the visit of the Security Council. It is very important that the Security Council goes to Burundi in the next few days and that they will have a unified position uh, vis-à-vis Burund- on the Burundi issue. Uh, I know the uh, chair of the uh, African Union, Madame Zuma, is deeply engaged in this. When I was in Valletta uh, in, on a migration meeting, she uh, very strongly made the case that EU, AU and UN must work hand in hand. And uh, we very much hope to see progress. Just days earlier, the UN's human rights chief, Saeedrad Alhussein, warned that alarm signals, including ethnic dimensions of the crisis, were flashing red. But as the Secretary General's deputy spokesperson, Farhan Haq, explains, there continues to be some hope. Although there have been very alarming signs of the situation on the ground in Burundi, he believes that there continues to be a window of opportunity and a window of hope to avert uh, a larger crisis. Uh, but for that to happen, what is really needed is, is uh, an impartial mediation that can help uh, the parties to, uh, to a, a real dialogue in which they can resolve their differences. But there needs to be willingness among the parties to, uh, to meet with each other and to negotiate with each other. And, uh, and there has to be a strengthened mediation effort to, to bring them together. On Monday, three people were killed in a grenade attack on a bar in the capital, Bujumbura. Council diplomats are also expected to visit the AU in Ethiopia while in the region. I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York. Civil society organizations are urging African leaders to ensure that South Sudan's justice mechanism are put in place as soon as possible. They say that this is the only way to bring a lasting reconciliation process in the country. Coletta Wanjohi reports. For over two years, South Sudan has continued to suffer from an internal conflict emerging from a power struggle between forces loyal to President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Mashar. A peace agreement signed in August 2015 has only produced a fragile peace which experts in justice say can easily break if mechanisms are not put to promote justice and accountability that will lead to reconciliation and healing in the country. The recommendation made by some experts is that the African Union speeds up the formation of a hybrid court that will try the perpetrators of the war that has torn the country apart since December 2013. Yasmin Soka, a South African human rights lawyer and the executive director of the Foundation of Human Rights in South Africa, says that there are already positive precedents that show that this kind of justice system will be possible. We've had more than probably 25 or 30 years of dealing with prosecutions, the contradictions, what's necessary, the expertise. And what we pointed out today is that Africa has some incredible examples 
If you look at the way in which the AU has led and managed the Senegalese process to prosecute Hassan Habre, that's a remarkable achievement. And then, of course, if you look at what the Chadian government did and the Chadian prosecutors to begin their own internal prosecutions, what we have are examples on the table. And, of course, if we take what have been the challenges of dealing with prosecutions, particularly of what I would call political crimes, um, what we know now is that what's really important is be, to be able to take into account the question of local context mm-hmm. and local expertise. So building up investigative expertise and making sure that that capacity exists, particularly in South Sudan, is quite critical because if you want to have people move into the area mm-hmm. and, in fact, to gather testimony and evidence, it's really important that you're able to send in local people who will be trusted by the population. The challenge is that many of those involved in the current peace process have blood in their hands, having been directly or indirectly involved in the South Sudan conflict. But David Deng, a researcher from the South Sudan Law Society, says that for now they are all bound by the peace process. However, they have agreed to this process, and it's not as though this is something which is being imposed upon them. They, uh, in August of this year, they agreed to the establishment of a hybrid court, establishment of a truth commission. These are things which have been deliberated for long within the context of the mediation. Um, So it's not something that's coming out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And I think the key now is um, to hold them to their commitments and to think about what are the really concrete next steps that we need to move ahead with this. Yasmin Soka, the South African human rights lawyer, adds that South Sudan will get justice even from those guilty who will hold office for now if only they will preserve evidence that will, when time comes, be used against them in court. A transitional government of national unity for South Sudan expected to be formed by South Sudan in three months after the August 2015 signing of the peace deal is yet to see the light of day. Koleto Njoye for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Civilians continue to suffer the brunt of sectarian conflict with a new UN report showing that close to 19,000 have been killed in the country since January 2014. In the report released by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Geneva, the violence suffered by civilians in Iraq remains staggering and the violence committed by the so-called Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant or ISIL may in some instances amount to war crimes, crimes against humanity and possibly genocide. Show in Bryce Peace reports. The report covers the period of January 1st, 2014 to October 31st, 2015 and shows that more than 36,000 people were wounded while a further 3 million were displaced during the same period. Ravina Shamdasani is spokesperson for the High Commissioner's Office in Geneva. We have documented uh, that more than 18,000, close to 19,000 civilians um, have been killed as a result of the armed conflict in Iraq since January 2014. And of these, 4,000 were killed in just last year between May and October. Um, The important thing to note is that this is highly likely to be a very, very strong underestimate. Um, the number of casualties could be considerably higher than this. The report also vividly demonstrates the circumstances that force so many from the region, particularly in Iraq and Syria, who flee to Europe and elsewhere. The horrors that the people of Iraq are facing are tremendous. Um, ISIL is abducting young children and recruiting them 
putting them in the front lines of war. And in one case that we've documented, um, these children have then fled the front lines of war because they were scared. When they got back, they were executed by ISIL for desertion. These are the kinds of horrors that people are facing. Women have been uh, subject to sexual slavery. Severe restrictions are being placed on their movement um, and the movement of men. Um, those who attempt to flee are caught and executed and hung out publicly to send a signal to others not to, to, uh, to, to take part in this kind of uh, behavior. Shamdasani says they've discovered a number of mass graves, one that contained 60 bodies, another 80. The kinds of violence that people who are living under ISIL rule are suffering is abominable. Um, we have documented uh, that people are being killed for their perceived allegiance uh, to the Iraqi government, people are being killed for perceived espionage. In one case, an imam was killed for not praying pro properly. Um, and the kinds of methods of execution that are used are just, they just go from bad to worse. Um, you've got people being bulldozed, you've got people being decapitated and hung in public to set an example for the others that this is what will happen to you if you do not obey. Um, you have people, uh, homosexuals, who've been thrown off the top of buildings. ISIL's attempt to create a Sunni caliphate across parts of Syria and Iraq has left a swath of destruction in its wake. The report's findings are based on information gathered from victims, witnesses and survivors. I'm Shervin Bricebees in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetwa. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rise it. Le soleil élevé. We ya wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonan. Africa, Mulishani, Pulibanj. Africa, Ayyomi, Kilon Shele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from, we are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A South African government's renewed efforts to restore investor confidence will be tested at the World Economic Forum, which opens at the Swiss Art Resort of Davos today. The annual event brings together global investors, bankers, business executives and political leaders to discuss the state of the world economy. President Jacob Zuma will lead a ministerial delegation to the summit and concerns about the country's amid concerns about the country's faltering economy. Tsepo Ikaning is in Davos and filed this report. Team South Africa has the mammoth task of selling the country facing a bleak economic outlook. Government has dismissed recession predictions amidst a weak currency, declining manufacturing sector and a severe drought increasing food prices. But it will have to also convince investors that fiscal policy remains sound, especially after President Jacob Zuma appointed three finance ministers in a week, leading to the Johannesburg Stock Exchange losing 170 billion rand. Leading economist Dr. Azar Jamin says the South African delegation will have to convince investors that recent developments does not point to lack of political leadership at the top. 
The only way in which the South African de delegation can restore confidence is to try and persuade uh, the members of the World Economic Forum and international investors that there is far more to the economy than merely President Zuma and that uh, there is a lot of there are a lot of skills both within the ruling party and in the private sector that can take this economy forward notwithstanding the mistakes that have been made in the past uh, there has to be a message of conviction that South Africa will undertake appropriate economic reforms to restore the country's economic growth path. Finance Minister Pravin Gordon is aware of the hard job ahead of selling Brent South Africa. He says they are counting on experience to regain trust of global investors to assure them that the country remains the continent's major foreign direct investment destination. You know, one, the one thing about South Africa is that we're very open about our problems. We know we have an electricity problem. We know we have a poverty and unemployment uh, and inequality problem. The world knows that. The question is whether we can work as Team South Africa, uh, as one team, to ensure that we have a common agenda, a common program, and each one does whatever they can in order to move us in the right direction. And I'm hoping that we will reinforce uh, the team spirit and uh, do whatever we can as each of the sectors to contribute to this. So the message that we will be taking to Davos is one which says that uh, South Africa is a very resilient country, that South Africa is a country that has many pluses, its business infrastructure, its monetary policy, its fiscal policy, its advanced infrastructure, and very sophisticated South African businesses that other people could partner with. Last week, President Zuma met with top business executives and captains of industry in Pretoria ahead of the World Economic Forum to ensure they all speak on the world stage from the same script. Team South Africa includes ministers, heads of parastatals and business leaders. I'm Tsepo Ikaneng in Davos, Switzerland. The leader of South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, Musi Maimani, has challenged racists not to vote for his party. Maimani was speaking at the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg about the recent racism storm that has captured the country. He outlined a number of steps that the party will be taking to uproot racism, warning members that they face expulsion should they be found to be racist. The DA recently came under the f under fire following its high-ranking member Diane Collabonard reinstatement into the party after being expelled for sharing a post on Facebook that praised former apartheid president P.W. Bota. This has opened the party to attacks that it was never going to be hard on racism. The party's Johannesburg mayoral candidate Herman Mashaba also had tongues wagging when he said he did not want to be classified as black but as a South African. For more on this, we earlier spoke to political analyst Dr. Somadota Figen. I think it's a courageous and pointed speech with all symbolism of it being in the Apartheid Museum. But at the same time, I do think that DA will have that on the issues of transformation and on the issues of policies, which is what matters most, because sometimes it has defended policies that are seen to be protecting white privilege. That is where DA will have to distinguish itself. So it wouldn't take just one speech by its leader.
but it would take a conscious, concerted effort. And beyond that, if any other people in future come out and are seen to be racist, the reaction of DA and how it handles that, even targeting the most senior ones, will be the one that will be taken seriously. The Diane Collar-Barnard saga, has it impacted the way voters view the DA? It certainly has, because DA was always struggling to unshackle or to remove the yoke of being a party of white privilege. And when you do have senior leaders seemingly endorsing the apartheid regime, uh, you know, era leaders in a nostalgic manner, this coming soon after in their most prominent event where Musi Maimane was elected in a federal congress, when the keynote speaker, a veteran journalist, Alistair Sparks, seemed to suggest that the smart leaders of the past were only the white ones without any mention of the black one. So all those cumulatively do have an impact on how DA is perceived. And now that you do have this generalized perception that there are many whites who still harbor those, they are simply keeping them to themselves. That's going to be a problem for DA because its growth path can only be in its penetration of the black constituency now. And at the same time, should DA go so strong on that, it would have to be careful not to alienate its traditional white base. Looking at uh, Maimani's speech yesterday, does the speech stamp his authority on the DA as a party? There's, um, there's been talk of him being just a leader without power for the party, with people behind the scenes who are pulling strings for him to be the face that pulls in black voters. Yesterday's speech, will it have an impact or does it have an impact on him as a leader of the DA? It takes more than just one swallow to declare that summer is coming in the rain. So it will take consistent actions to demonstrate that he is in charge. It's not just a team around him advising him when to do what, especially when elections are coming. And uh, it will also take uh, him taking on some, even the old guard, when they seem to endorse things that will present DA in the negative light. Now, Dr. Figeni, we've seen the DA try and diversify their leadership. Are we likely to see voters giving the DA what they're looking for and giving them the power that they're looking for? Certainly, without any doubt, DA will begin to encroach into the traditional black constituencies because you now have quite a strong team of black leaders who can penetrate, who can hold uh, hold rallies in black townships and so forth. But I don't think people will come and mass in big numbers. It will be DA working on this over time. But as you have more blacks coming into the DA, the question is whether the traditional white voters and the funders will stay with the DA or may decide to retreat.
for the DA to get the voters that they're looking for? You've mentioned the fact that uh, they'll be able to hold rallies in locations, black locations, for instance. What else does the DA need to do to ensure that voters do give them their vote, you know, changing the political landscape in the country? It's mainly the policies and coming on board on the issues of transformation because DA has always been weak when it comes to the transformation message to deal with the legacy of the past. They deal with the current contemporary issues of corruption, service delivery efficiency, uh, and uh, having growth policies. And they seem to have little uh, appetite for anything that makes reference to history. They would have to change that because the opponents like ANC, EFF, will always hammer on that one. That was Dr. Somatota Figeni, political analyst, joining us on the line earlier. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.30 Central African time, and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta says his troops will remain in Somalia even after last week's militant attacks in which a number of Kenyan soldiers were killed. United Nations Deputy Secretary General Jan Alusson has warned that if the crisis in Burundi takes on ethnic dimensions, it will be much harder to control. And attacks by Boko Haram in the Defar region of southeast Niger has driven 100,000 people from their homes in recent weeks. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And the World Economic Forum starts this morning in Davos, Switzerland. Over 2,500 leaders from business, government, international organizations, civil society, academia, media and the arts will participate in this 46th annual meeting. To tell us about what we can expect from this forum, Sakina Kamwendo spoke to researcher and economist Catherine Grant Makokera. When we look at what the World Economic Forum put out recently uh, uh, about a survey of risks that they do annually just before Davos, 
Um, there's, a, there's a very interesting sort of shift that's happening if you look at what business leaders actually think is, is going to be troubling them in 2016. Uh, there's much more focus on environmental issues this year. We know that ourselves with regards to the El Nino uh, weather pattern that we have at the moment and what that actually means for our economy. Uh, there are new threats like cybersecurity was perceived to be the biggest threat to business in North America for 2016. Uh, so I think that there's a very long list facing our leaders in Davos. And uh, speaking of cybersecurity, I guess um, it ties in quite nicely with this theme of mastering the fourth industrial revolution. Mm, absolutely. So this is something that the World Economic Forum has come up with. Um, Klaus Schwab is apparently writing a book on the fourth industrial revolution at the moment. And, and from what I can gather, it's really talking about how we balance technology and human uh, the human side if you like in terms of leadership going forward as we have new things like robots and drones uh, artificial intelligence entering into our everyday life into the workplace what, what does that mean for, for global leaders Mm. And then if we look at what's happening uh, this year, Angela Merkel not attending mm-hmm. and, 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 and in some way giving credence to some of the criticism, uh, saying that this is nothing more than a talk shop, because what people want to know is, you know, what comes out of this uh, in concrete terms. So what are some of the more actionable items uh, that we have seen come out of Davos meetings? I think if we'd look at that from a South African perspective, we, we have seen a few things over, over the over the years. Uh, one is, is related to the World Cup that we hosted here in 2010. Um, I think Davos was used both as a lobbying tool to ensure that South Africa was able to host that um, big event, but also it was a way to promote it at the time. And uh, South Africa had, had extremely good marketing and branding around uh, the 2010 World Cup, which I think contributed in part to its success. Um, we've also seen it as an opportunity, for example, to uh, talk to people about our energy crisis. Um, and to ensure that we were able to access funds from international development finance institutions like the World Bank and the African Development Bank for ESCOM, uh, and also to make sure that that, uh, we can continue to do so as as we will need more funding for energy going forward. So I think that they are the types of things that happen at Davos. It's always very hard to quantify um, the value of something like this, which is effectively just a networking platform, if you like. Um, so it's really about building trust. It's really about building relationships. Uh, but, of course, that's hard to put um, mm. a, you know, a figure on. And then Minister Praveen Gordon saying that the one thing about us as South Africa is that we're very open about our problems. So what will South Africa be putting on the table at Davos this year? Uh, it's interesting. I, I was looking at the delegation list. It's a very big delegation going from South Africa. Uh, a lot of parastatals, um, which is, is to be expected. So we will no doubt be talking about some of our infrastructure development plans uh, where we will be needing investment. Um, that includes, I see, a, a big team from Transnet, for example. So we'll be talking about the transport. Energy will definitely be there. Um, we can put money on that. Uh, and perhaps we'll be also looking a bit, bit further beyond ourselves um, and the interconnectedness of, of the, the African continent. Um, I'm sure that that will be a theme for South Africa as well. And you spoke about that big delegation. And looking at one of our severest challenges, uh, that of unemployment, um, have you noted you know, great youth participation at this WEF conference? The WEF does go out of its way to try and uh, bring into uh, play a whole lot of 
different non-stake actors, and they do have youth-based um, programs, and there have been South Africans who've participated in those, but, but that tends to be through the World Economic Forum's initiative itself. Uh, what we don't see still happening is the inclusion of youth in the preparatory meetings, for example, that took place last week uh, before everybody headed off to Davos, and, and we don't see people in the Davos delegation. Uh, you've got to remember, though, that Davos is quite a closed forum. You have to be invited and you have to pay your way. Uh, so it's not a, not a cheap experience. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts, and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. The crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Ikreli, Lotugai, and the sands of the Kharahad have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. At times, and in fear, I have wondered whether I should concede equal citizenship of our country to the leopard and the lion, the elephant and the springbok, the hyena, the black mamba, and the pestilential mosquito. A human presence among all of these, a feature on the face of our native land just defined, I know that none dare challenge me when I say I am an African. This is Channel Africa, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The Students' Representative Council SRC at Witts University in Johannesburg will engage in joint fundraising efforts together with the university in an attempt to assist over 6,000 indebted students at the institution. The so-called missing middle are the intended beneficiaries as they are considered too rich to get funding from the National Financial Aid Scheme, yet too poor to afford university fees. Meanwhile, the cases against three University of Johannesburg students suspended for taking part in the strike by university workers last year are yet to be resolved. Wisani Makubele has more. The SRC adverts says while their call for free education still stands, for now they'll be focusing on fundraising for 6,300 indebted students. SRC Secretary General Fasia Hassan says one of the agreements reached with management is that if a person owes 1,000 rent and below, the amount will be rolled over to this year, allowing them to register. If someone is owing just over 1,000 rand to 5,000 rand, between the university and SRC, we're actually going to be doing some fundraising to get them through the system. For people who owe between 5,000 and 20,000, we're going to be engaging provincial government and other stakeholders around those fundraising elements to get those students through. So essentially, we're going to ensure that 6,309 students are going to be in the system getting an education this year. 
Vets University spokesperson Sharona Patel has reiterated that students can still register without paying the 9,500 rent upfront registration fee. For all students who cannot afford the registration or upfront fee, we've scrapped the upfront and registration fees. That means they can come to the university, they can uh, sign a form or online, just click a button online and they will be allowed to register for this year. What it does mean is that their first instalment will be due at the end of March 2016. If they still cannot afford to pay the 9,000 rand at the end of March, then students have to enter into an agreement with the university to repay the money. Meanwhile, the cases against three University of Johannesburg students suspended for taking part in the strike by university workers last year are yet to be resolved. A total of six students were initially suspended. Three of them have since had their suspensions lifted after signing forms agreeing never to engage in any disruptive behavior on campus. This is despite the university promising that all suspensions would be unconditionally withdrawn when the strike ends. UJ Vice-Chancellor Iron Rensberg. The other three have not had it uplifted because they are unwilling to sign a commitment statement um, that says that without um, taking away their right to protest that they will uphold the university's rules and that they will abide by the court orders that the university had obtained. They have failed to do so and therefore their disciplinary hearings are continuing and we expect to complete those no later than middle of February. However, student leader Lindoku Shekulu says the university is punishing the trio for their refusal to agree never to engage in protests again. The university has denied these students justice. They've been suspended for three months now without a disciplinary hearing taking place. Now, this tells us that the university is not willing uh, to compromise in this matter simply because they want to use these students as an example of what they do to activists. Both VETS and UJ are still busy with registration with academic programs set to commence on the second week of next month. I'm Wisani Makubele in Johannesburg. Developing countries could experience what a senior economist at the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, has described as a bumpy ride in 2016. The comment follows the publication of an update to the IMF's World Economic Outlook, which was published in October last year. The update projects that global growth this year will be 3.4%, slightly lower than last autumn's forecast. Bruce Edwards compiled this report. We may be in for a bumpy ride this year, especially in the emerging and developing economies. Speaking at a press conference in London, IMF chief economist Morris Obsfeld laid out what he described as the three major forces currently influencing the global economic outlook. China's slower growth and rising financial market risks amid a process of macroeconomic rebalancing away from traditional industry and construction towards services and consumption. The fall in commodity prices, notably the price of oil, and asynchronous trends in monetary policy, mainly between the U.S. and most other advanced economies. And while the China slowdown and strengthening U.S. dollar were well underway last October, Obstfeld said the effects of these trends, especially the decline in commodity prices, continue to play out. Even since mid-October, we've seen the price of base metals fall by 15%, while the price of oil has fallen more than 40%. Paradoxically, while risk-averse investors have focused on the potential negative impacts of these developments, 
China's rebalancing is essential for its transition to a more sustainable growth model. Lower commodity prices benefit consumers and they lower production costs. And the Fed's well-communicated interest rate increase in December reflects the relatively strong performance of the U.S. economy. But the changes do present big challenges for many countries, Osfeld said, with emerging and developing economies accounting for two-thirds of the downward revision. What are the specific numbers? We project that global economic growth of 3.1% in 2015 will accelerate to 3.4% in 2016 and 36 in 2017. These figures are both 0.2 percentage point below what we projected in October. While still on the rise, growth forecasts for most emerging market and developing countries are the lowest since the 2008 financial crisis. Looming large in the emerging and developing group are countries facing especially severe multiple challenges and strongly negative 2015 growth, uh, for example, Brazil and Russia. Growth prospects in parts of Asia have diminished somewhat as a result of the unexpectedly big spillovers from China. Uh, in contrast, India continues to grow at the fastest pace among large emerging economies and, in fact, among all large economies. While the WIO update projects the global economy will continue to grow, albeit more slowly, Obstfeld cautioned that events in one important stressed economy can spill over to others. A downside risk is that China's economy could encounter rough patches where growth slows more than expected, directly affecting trade partners while disturbing foreign exchange and other asset markets worldwide. We've maintained our growth assessments for China in light of the robust developments of its service and new economy sectors. But the picture could change farther down the road. Obstfeld said geopolitical risks had also intensified in recent months, noting refugee outflows from Syria are imposing extreme burdens on neighboring countries and have spilled over into Europe. Rapid absorption of refugees into labor markets will ultimately lift output, but will place upfront demands on national public budgets. As difficult as are the challenges for the receiving countries, we must not lose sight of the source country security concerns that give rise to both internal and external displacements of people. Uh, these impose immense costs, first of all, on the refugees themselves. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabi Solehoko.
The South African government's renewed efforts to restore investor confidence will be tested at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The three-day annual event opening on Wednesday brings together global investors, bankers, business executives and political leaders to discuss the world economy. Economist Azajameen. The only way in which the South African delegation can restore confidence is to try and persuade the members of the World Economic Forum and international investors that there is far more to the economy than merely President Zuma. There are a lot of skills, both within the ruling party and in the private sector, that can take this economy forward. There has to be a message of conviction that South Africa will undertake appropriate economic reforms to restore the country's economic growth path. Kenya has been ranked among the top promising investment markets in Africa after South Africa and Nigeria. A report titled Agility Emerging Markets Logistics Index 2016 says a faster-growing middle class and the demand for mineral resources are important growth drivers in the country. Others are new oil and gas finds, rapid infrastructure development, strong agricultural demand and increased foreign direct investments. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has submitted a corrected version of the 2016 budget to the National Assembly. Following adjustments to the detailed breakdown of the budget that had led to some confusion, Buhari then submitted a new draft, keeping the overall figures unchanged. The draft bill remains the same and there are no changes in any of the estimates. South Africa's Labour Federation, Kusatu, says it's not happy that an agreement was, wasn't reached with the ruling National African Congress. This regarding their concerns about the new tax amendment law and its effects on workers' retirement funds. The ANC and Kusatu held a meeting to discuss the issue on Monday. Kusatu's spokesperson, Siso Pamla. We told them that we will continue with our mobilization. We are going to apply for Section 77 for a strike. We are going to uh, take this to our CC and then we'll roll out our campaign. We will wait for them to come back to us and hopefully they will come out with something more tangible this time around. But if nothing, if they don't repeal this law that we are totally opposed to, uh, it will mean that we will continue to roll out our campaign. BHP Bulletin says it sees no recovery in iron ore or coal prices in the next few years. The top global miner has reinforced the bleak outlook for most commodities in the near term. BHP says it's also committed to protecting its strong balance sheet. The miner is reeling oil prices, which have slumped further than expected. The South African Rand is trading at 1673 US dollars, 1153 Botswana Buda, 1114 in Zambia, 0.70 British pound, 0.91 euro. Gold 1093 dollars, platinum 823 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil 28 dollars, 27 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
Now, sports update this hour, starting off with athletics. Reigning champion Eluid Kipchoge will vie with two-time winner Wilson Kipsang for this year's London Marathon mains title. A 31-year-old Kipchoge beat his fellow Kenyan in a sprint finish in 2015. Kipsang says he will be fully prepared as he will be hoping to secure his place at the Olympics. The is going on very well. At the moment, I'm training very good. Uh, I have no injury. I'm feeling that the body is responding so well. Very strong compared to last year. The focus and the plan for, for, for London is to run very well because you find that the selection for the Olympics will be done at the end of uh, London Marathon. London is very important to me because if I run very well, I know I've got a chance to, to really represent my country in the Olympics. And uh, with good preparation, you find that uh, everybody has a chance of winning the race. It's only the, the, the preparation and um, the execution on the real day and the, 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 maybe the, the, the planning and the, the, the tactics during the, the, the race. With athletics being in the press quite a lot often for the controversies surrounding the sport, Kipsang says he's disappointed with the reports. You know, we as the athletes, we are not really happy when we try to, to hear issues of maybe other people in the administration of athletics Kenya or, at, or in IWF where people are somehow corrupt and trying to, to, to maybe uh, protect athletes who have been doping at the expense of uh, other clean athletes. So I think it was not really good because we couldn't expect, we, we, we just expected that maybe an athlete was found to have, uh, to have uh, doped, to be banned, and that is the rules. But uh, we want to make sure that, we, we really want to make sure that uh, we, we after trust, all from IWF, uh, underdoping, down to, to, to the athletics, to federation, to member federations, to the athletes. Because you find that uh, the people who are going to suffer most are those who are going to compete clean and they, they don't get a chance to win fairly. Football news, Mali twice came from behind to draw two all with Uganda while Zambia edged out neighbors Zimbabwe 1-0 in the opening Group D games at the ongoing Rwanda African Nations Championship. Uganda captain Farouk Mia set up a, and scored a goal before going off injured at halftime while Isaac Chanza scored the only goal of the game to give Zambia their win. The next Group D games are on Saturday, as Zimbabwe play Mali and Uganda face Zambia. And finally, with golf news, Bethlehem Strauss is on course for a maiden Sunshine Ladies Tour victory after taking a one-shot lead in the Ladies' Joburg Open at the Royal Johannesburg and Kensington Golf Club on Tuesday. Strauss added a 3 under par 69 to an opening 68 at the West Course to lead on 7 under 137. But she's well aware of Leanne Pace, Kim Williams, Ashley Simon and Nobusle Jamini from Swaziland looming large in her review mirror. Jamini says she did not start well. Starting from the SA Open that we played, I did not play well at all in, uh, in KZN. So I was a bit worried, to be honest. But I mean, I still believed in myself and I still knew that I could do it. And I believed that I had the whole year to work uh, to work and be able to do what I do school. And look, I carried on doing what I, what I had been doing the, the whole year. And uh, I put in some good results at school. I had some three very good rounds. And the, the last two rounds were not that great. But I mean, it was tough conditions. So I'll take it. I got the job done. That's it with sports this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at this hour. The UN Security Council members to visit Burundi and the UN report reveals shocking levels of violence in Iraq. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Trezor with a song titled Never Let Me Go.